Welcome to Elisha Space Podcast. Our guest today is Blossom Zell, founder of Specialized Education Services, where her mission is to help students overcome and thrive despite their learning challenges. She shares practical tips that caregivers can do to support their students. Let's get started. Welcome, audience, to Elisha Space. I am excited to share with you that I have a fantastic guest for us today. Her name is Blossom Zell, and she has her own private practice where she helps people who are going through a difficult education process or maybe learning, have some learning instabilities. And she helps that student get to a more strategic place. She also works with people who are, would fall under that umbrella of IEPs and 504 plans. And she helps their caregivers how to make sense of everything and what the rights are to the students and what questions can be asked and things of that nature. And I asked her on the show, just because quite a few of my clientele that I have come in, they have students who fall under that umbrella of either being homeschooled or they fall under the umbrella of having a 504 IEP or would fall under that labeling of special needs. And so I thought I would have her come on the show. First of all, I think what she does at Specialized Education is amazing and fantastic and wonderful. And I think there needs to be more people like her in the world just because she's just a really good person. But also to let you know about this resource as well and to let you know that part of your healing journey is to know what your resources and your support is. And she could possibly be a resource or a support to you. So Blossom, I thank you for coming on the show and for honoring us with your presence today. Thanks for having me. Yes. So if you could just kind of share with us, how did you start this business? What was the journey that got you here? I was just going to say, it's quite a journey. (laughs) I started teaching in Montgomery County, Maryland, and I taught emotionally impaired and learning disabled kids there for 15 years. And I have to say, I got very spoiled with the amount of resources that were available, the willingness of people to support kids at that time. But I had to move up to Pennsylvania for personal reasons. So after I moved up to Pennsylvania, I took a job through the intermediate unit, which is something that Maryland doesn't have. It's kind of like a consortium that provides various services to all the different school districts. Pennsylvania has all these tiny little school districts all over the state, whereas in Maryland, they were countywide. And I think the way things are funded in Maryland is so different than the way things are funded in Pennsylvania. There is somewhat of a disconnect. So when I came here, I was a little taken aback about how little services or choices were available. My two children also had learning issues and the choices that I had for them were very far and few between. And being a full-time teacher, I would have homeschooled, but back then, you know, 15 years ago or so, being homeschooled was for the quote-unquote weird kids or the ultra-religious, which didn't fit our needs. 
things have vastly changed. When the pandemic hit and the world shut down, I noticed that things got even harder for kids with special needs. So after teaching 15 years in public school, about 2012-ish, I decided I, I really just felt like things were not going the way that I felt things should be handled. I didn't feel like kids were getting the kinds of supports they needed. I didn't feel like IEPs were actually being individualized. And I had my 30 years in and decided, okay, I'm done. And I had some students that were, parents were panicked and said, well, could you still see our kids? We'll pay you. <laughs> and that's sort of how this all started. And then I had teacher friends that were working with parents that were in the homeschool population, which has grown tremendously. And those kids with special needs get really no support. And parents really don't know how to deal with those kinds of things. So it sort of opened up a niche that there really wasn't anything within this area of Pennsylvania which is South Central PA. So gradually word got out between pediatricians and neuropsychs and friends in the homeschool community and all of that. And it just grew exponentially. And my retirement is in the rear view mirror now. So <laughs> I am pretty booked right now. I try to work only Monday through Thursday because on Fridays I reserve it for school meetings, for talking to new clients, for catching up on anything that might ha- you know need to be done for kids. So that's sort of how this whole thing started. Originally, I actually took my classroom and literally moved it to my basement. And, wow. and up until the pandemic, it was my own little school and people would come and I saw everybody face to face. When the pandemic hit, I moved upstairs so that I could see the world instead of being in my own little cubby down there. And surprisingly, it works almost better because I ha- it's no different than having kids across the table from me, especially if I have parents that are really invested in their kids. I like parents to be there. I like them to be aware of the techniques that I'm teaching their kids because I can't be there every single day. So it's just kind of worked itself out that this particular way of providing services has been very successful. For a parent to come to you, they would have to be extremely engaged, but do you also provide consultation services to them, especially if they're homeschooled mm-hmm. because they don't have the training? Right. Yes. Yes. I have I have parents that call me all the time and just wanted to know whether they're in a public school setting and they're confused about what the school is telling them and need. I'm not a lawyer, but I try to give them the best answers that I know from the special education law, what their options are, what kinds of things they could ask the school for, how to get alternate evaluations, what kinds of services to ask for. One of the things that I noticed was a huge disconnect when I was in the classroom was I would reserve at least an hour, if not more, to talk to a parent before moving a child into their special ed program. Parents are not versed in what an IEP is. 
parents are not versed on what is a child's right or or the family's right to a free and public education. And so many parents feel sitting around that table with all of these educators around them talking in educationese, they don't know what to do. So they sign papers and then they don't know what they've signed because they're trusting that the school's going to give them what their child needs. So I do some of that. I sometimes attend IEP meetings with a parent. I also, like you said, I can consult and tell them some materials that might work for their child if they're homeschooling. I can tell them about my services and what I do and my availability. I quickly found out that I wasn't able to say, this is what I'm going to (laughs) do. It's kind of moved in numbers of directions. Originally, I thought I'd only do K to three. And now I have kids in high school that have been with me that long. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of meandered and done its own thing. And fortunately, it's been a success both for the families as well as for me professionally. It's satisfying. So, what do you enjoy most about what you do? Oh, the success. I have to say, you know, I get kids lots of times that are barely reading and don't know their letter names and sounds or don't have any number sense. And to look back to see even what six months can do for a kid like that and and see their self-esteem grow and see the parents relax and build back because so many of these kids have been hammered down at school and feel very unintelligent. You know, Mm -hmm. I have kids that come and they say to me, I'm stupid, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's, that's why it's called educational therapy because I don't just tutor. If you need a tutor for algebra one, there's plenty of people that can do that for you. But I take the kids and the families that are struggling and try to help them as a whole, look at the child as a whole. I'm very diagnostic prescriptive in terms of where their skills are and where I want them to go. Oftentimes I have to tell kids and families I am not on a schedule. We're going to move at the speed of Michael or the speed of Jennifer or whoever, because Mm -hmm. they're going to pick it up when they're ready and they've had enough instruction and can take it in. And that moment of, I had a child literally say to me, I had no idea what those lines on a page were for. Talking about letters. Wow. No idea, like never made that connection that all those squiggly lines were words. I have kids that don't know the difference between sounds and letters and words and sentences. The schools don't realize that you have to get to the very bottom and the very basic before a child can grow. So I find it almost fun to kind of figure out a child and see what works and then see them grow. So you do what I typically do. Similarly in therapy, I see where the person's at and then I gauge growth from meeting them where they are and then gauge their growth guarding that. It's right. not like you create a, I'm sure you have a guide or a curriculum, but you also follow the lead of the student. Right, right. My training, I was very fortunate. I When I got trained, I was in Washington, D.C., and I went to American University. And mm-hmm. at the time, there were two upper echelon MED programs, Master of Education programs. One was with Sally Smith, who ran the lab school 
which is there's a branch of it now down at what's it called the children's port down the bottom of 83 over by little Italy area. But I got to work with Sally. She started in DC and she was a wonderful mentor. Unfortunately, she has since passed, but she was just wonderful. And Dr. Nicholas Long was known in the research for working with all of these top psychiatrists and psychologists like Bruno Bettelheim and those kinds of people. And he wrote the book Crisis in the Classroom, teaching us about conflict cycle, how that all impacts a child, their self-esteem. So a lot of what I learned is what a lot of psychologists learned, but maybe not as you know, as much as you would, because I'm an educator, but I did get a lot of training in that area, which I am so grateful for because it lets me read the kids. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not just, can you read that letter to me? I need to know how they're feeling. I need to know what they're thinking. I need to know their thought process and how they learn best. So I feel like I do things a little differently. And that's probably why I didn't fit in real well in some of the schools I've worked in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's okay. So how would you create a plan for a student? Just how would you go about doing that? So typically the first thing I would want to do, I first speak with the parents. I kind of get a feel for where they're struggling. Lots of times parents are not even able to articulate what the problem is. They just say, I'm getting a lot of tantrums. He doesn't want to go to school. He doesn't want to do homework. You know, he can't sit still for two seconds, you know, those kinds of things. So I start thinking about, well, what kinds of issues could be impacting? Then I typically do some sort of informal evaluation, depending on whether it's reading, spelling, writing, or math. I want a general idea of where they're phonics skills are, where their reading skills are, where their number skills are. And that's the diagnostic part of it. Then I match a program and I have several different ones and decide which program I think that child would be most successful in. And at that point, then I tell the parents what materials they would need. Parents buy it. I always suggest an extra camera, a document camera, so that I can see both ways. And then we talk schedule. And, you know, some kids come twice a week for an hour. Other kids come three times a week for 30 minutes. Other kids come once a week. It all depends on their needs and availability. But I always tell parents, too, that if you cannot come to the intensity that I feel like your child needs, progress is going to be much, much slower. And sometimes I have to say to a parent, if you can't commit to this amount of time, it's not really helping your child. Mm -hmm. So typically it's two to three times a week for various amounts of time. Okay. And when do you, when do you? Reeval? Reevaluate? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So I reevaluate in two ways. One way is my diagnostic prescriptive script that's in my head. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, we're still not there. We need to add this. Others, I also have like end of unit evaluations, those kinds of things. I used to do a lot more paper pencil stuff, like having been used to doing it in the schools. But when I'm working one-on-one, 
both the parents and I can see the success. So mm-hmm. typically the reevaluation part is more if something's not going well or we're not seeing success, then I have to kind of reevaluate. Well, let me think of it this way, or let me, do you have these kinds of materials or would you be able to bring in some hands-on, more hands-on kinds of things? And the parents that I work with are so grateful to have the services. I They're always willing. I have to say I have a great bunch of parents that I've worked with through the years. And, you know, like most parents, they would do whatever they need to do to help their kids do better, feel better, make it better. Some kids, you know, just never received the right kind of education. And within a year to two years, they're well on their way and off they go back, whatever. Mm-hmm. Other mm-hmm. kids I've had for years. I have um, one student that I started with in third grade and he is graduating high school this year. I had another child that came to me in fourth grade, graduated last year and <laughs> didn't want to leave. And so we're continuing, we're doing more writing and how you write things. So like you say, I just follow the kid, you know, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. are the kids needs? Are we making progress? And the parents, interestingly enough, at school, you always want to see progress reports and where are we? And, but with me, it's so clear when they make the progress, I hardly ever get asked, to write, you know, specific things, unless I'm having to go to a school meeting. I understand. So um, what would you share with a parent, you know, just some practical tips who may be trying to support their student, but they're having some difficult times? My biggest thing is to a parent, whether it's ADHD, learning disabilities, whatever it is, most importantly, try and educate yourself. There are plenty of reliable, good places on the web and I put them on my website because so many places are not so reliable, but one of the most well-known is called understood.org. I don't know if you're aware of that one. That one came about, I want to say five or six years ago, where several well-known psychiatrists and psychologists all came together and said, you know, we need a place where parents can come to answer all kinds of questions. And they provide information about various learning disabilities, what kinds of things you could do for ADHD, pros and cons of medication, where you can go to get more information. And they even have people on there that you can find in your area I think I'm listed on there somewhere, but they have referrals and things where there's other resources and where you can go. That's a big one because it's written on the level of a parent, not on the level of necessarily a professional. So it explains things in regular terms. And a lot of parents go there for a lot of good stuff. The other place is to find books by reputable people, psychologists. There's a place called ADD Warehouse that has tons of books. Even though it's called ADD, it's not just about attention deficit. It's about all kinds of things. Get a book, read the book, and think about what it's telling you and decide if you, you know, your child fits there or if some of the things that they're saying make sense. Sometimes it's just you need to know in your heart that it's okay if my child has ADD or LD or whatever, and that it gives suggestions of how best to support your child. I do that in my sessions as well. You know, sometimes I just meet with a parent. They'll say, look, I just need I need to talk to you. I'm going to tell so-and-so to go in the other room. I have questions. So it's kind of all-encompassing. 
But I often tell people, get educated. You know, if someone's telling you there's a problem with your child, go learn about what that is so that you can speak more from their understanding, you know, so that you don't feel like they're so above you. The other thing I would add to that is I constantly come across individuals that are overwhelmed. Oh my, yes. Uh, You know, they're just overwhelmed and a little bit heartbroken too Mm -hmm. over the Mm -hmm. fact that their child, whether it be their child, their grandchild, you know, Mm -hmm. the person that they're raising that they're having this situation because it's like mentally, I don't want to say it this way, but I'll say it. They kind of think the student is broken. Yes. Or it's their fault. Or it's their fault. I get a lot of things where parents and kids feel like they did something. I've had parents in tears. Or it's a punishment of some sort. Or it's a punishment. Right. What did I do to, to have my child have to suffer with this? You know, why did I do that when I was in my youth? You know, and it's like, you know, I try to help them to understand. It's like, well, we all did things. It's a gene pool. It's not necessarily anything you did in particular. What you need to do is, again, I'll say to them, educate yourself, learn about what they're saying and forgive yourself. It's not, this is not something you did or caused. It's fairly common now. And the best thing you can do for yourself and for your child is find the help and the support and don't give up. Don't be afraid to go in and say, this isn't working for my child. I need something else. And, you know, get help, get an advocate or have someone go to the meeting with you so that you don't feel quite so alone. But yeah, I get a lot of that, that, you know, people ask me all the time, what did I do to cause this? Yeah, I often tell the caregivers that I think they're superheroes, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, because I think that I, I personally don't believe that things happen by mistake, you know, that there right. was a reason that that student was chosen for you mm-hmm. and, you know, yes. and there must be something special in you to make mm-hmm. that student be connected to you. You know, so I kind of think that it's not, you know, the self-blaming and the beating yourself up and Mm -hmm. things like that. It doesn't do any, the would have, could have, should have, doesn't even do any good anyway. Right. Right. So, you know, I always tell people you have to be strong. You have to be an advocate for you and your child. And if you're feeling it in your gut that something's not right, then don't ignore that. Right. 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 You know, and if one person won't tell you. Go to another. I was thinking the other day about that very thing, you know, that gut feeling, like when you have that sense that something's not right, even Mm -hmm. if it's in like a casual conversation with someone or something like that, Mm -hmm. it really shouldn't be ignored because something is letting you know something's off. So it's always something, especially when it comes to a child, you know. Well, I liken it to right now, there's a lot of issues about women being ignored when they go to the doctors or right. It's the same thing, you know, and finally, we're starting to have conversations that mental health is every bit as important as physical health. And if you feel there's something not right, follow that, figure it out. Exactly. What are some of your favorite resources? I tend to use a lot of materials and programs that include hands-on. I've read some research about, and I don't know, you know, I haven't done intense research, but I've read several things that said when things go through your fingers, that it goes to your brain. So any kind of tactile 
material that I can find of blocks, magnetic letters, sand, writing in the air, anything that makes it real. There's a terrific math program out there by a guy named Chris Wooden who teaches up at Landmark. Landmark is a famous school up in New England that Mm -hmm. deals strictly with learning disabled. And he's written and devised these programs that are totally visual and hands-on. And it's so different than any other math program. It's kind of like, you know, like I said, we don't need to use materials that we know aren't working. Let's find some materials that work. And if the more they can handle it, the better. I have a writing program when I first started, I was like, how in the world can you make writing a hands-on activity? But this program actually has pieces that you move things around and you almost diagram it kind of in the old fashioned way, but the Mm -hmm. kids love it. So any way that I can make it fun, any way I can bring in hands-on materials, anything like that. So to make a kid feel successful, those are my favorite materials. So yes, I agree. Those are fun. Those are really fun. And it goes into also the correlation regarding like a lot of times because we talk about so many abstract things. Yes. Even with counseling, we provide objects or Mm -hmm. something that they can Mm -hmm. touch to help define what they're feeling. So I think that's a really good because math to me, a lot of times is abstract, you know, so how do you teach an abstract thing and make it real especially for someone they, that maybe is autistic in the oh, autistic gosh, spectrum yes. or something yes. of that nature. So this, yeah. this is really good. Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, when I first started on my own, I was like, I don't want to provide reading like reading at school. I want right. to be different. I want to find the materials that definitely work and invest in them buy them. And it just kind of grew from there. There's a lot of people who run schools that have devised special things that public schools don't have access to because nobody has the time. Everybody has to worry about tests. You know, it's not about the kid anymore. And you see people in the DMV area. It's not limited to Pennsylvania, correct? Not anymore. <laughs> it's. I just had a call earlier today from somebody in Massachusetts. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. They can't find anybody, which, you know, to me, that is like so hard. You know, I thought it was just around here, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that there weren't things available. And I've had calls from Delaware and Virginia and Ohio and way down South Maryland, like Eastern Mm -hmm. Shore, I have a student. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the furthest thing in my mind when this all started. And now it's (laughs) always works out like that, right? Yeah. And it's kind of nice to be able to offer it to people who aren't in the immediate area. You know, I will say everybody's very nervous about doing it online. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that because the way the schools did it Mm -hmm. was almost shocking. They were so unprepared and they tried to do it exactly as if they were in front of a classroom with all these kids on their screens. Mm -hmm. And then they wondered why these kids were failing. And it's like there was no connection there. 
And I find, like I say, it's like I make sure the kid has the exact same materials in front of them as I do in front of me, which, like I said, it's no different than someone sitting across the table from me. Mm-hmm. So sometimes parents are nervous until they try it. And I've lost, I can knock on wood, I've lost no one simply because I'm online. They're always worried. And then they start and it's like, oh my gosh, this is great. Right. So right. they don't have to drive or fly. <laughs> It sounds like your practice is is very busy with the one-on-ones working with people. Very much, yeah. Is that primarily what you do, the one-on-ones? Do you do any like- I do, except for families. I have a couple homeschool families. I have one family in particular that came to me and both kids were just, the whole first two weeks, it was just getting them to relax. You know, they were so, you know, and it was like we played games and we did some assessment stuff with them. And then finally, we got to the point where as soon as I would start something new, one had a learning disability in reading and writing and one had a math disability. And it's Mm -hmm. so funny because now they'll support each other and say, well, you know how I have problems with, but Miss Blossom Mm -hmm. says, you know, um, and I make a rule at that point that there's no crying in Miss Blossom's classroom. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be, we work, we work as a team, but, um, but I, you know, I do feel like I'm relatable to the kids and that makes a big difference. So it does. It does. If someone wants to get in further contact with you, get to know you a little bit better, maybe even have questions about what you offer Mm -hmm. uh, or just want to have a chat, how can they reach out to you? So the easiest way is to go to my website and send me an email. That's probably the easiest and the quickest. There's a phone number on there as well, but because I'm always with kids, it's near impossible for me to answer it. And then I can't get back to you until later. But if you send me an email at some point, if I have a few minutes as I'm going through, I can get back to you quicker and maybe set up a time where we can talk. At the same time, my website tells a little bit about me, but it also has those resources of where to go for good, reliable information. And so I always direct people there first. The other place is I do have a Facebook page for specialized educational And I try and update that frequently with all the latest articles that I run across, you know, the latest things about what meds are out there, the latest things about supporting children with issues, the latest things about how to support your child during an IEP meeting. All of those kinds of things are available there as well. So the website is www.specializededucationalservices.com. And from there, you can get to my Facebook page, you can get to my email, you can get to my phone number, all of that is there. So it's probably the best way to reach out. And also to audience, I'll have her information on the description of this podcast. So you can just look on the description, click on that website, because I'll have the hyperlink there and you can go directly to her site if you'd like to. And like I said, this podcast 
it's not limited to our regional area. It goes Mm -hmm. all across Mm -hmm. in many different areas. So, And she did say that she is offering virtual services. So if that's something that you're considering or don't let that be something that limits you, if anything, it's just a conversation that you can have with Blossom. Right, right. And I don't mind. Because this is her passion. This is her mission. Just like for me, counseling is my passion. It's my mission. This is hers. And so I thought I'd have her on. And I thank you so much, Blossom, for coming on. Oh, I appreciate it. It's an answer to so many people who may be literally agonizing over resources and people that they can use to help them with their child or understand what's Mm -hmm. going on with their child. Right. I thank you for coming on. And audience, my hope is that you will use or in other resources that you'll find other connections to help you as as you move forward in your healing journey. So Blossom, I thank you for joining us and audience until next time. See you later. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll subscribe so we can keep the conversation going. If you love the show, consider becoming a subscriber for $9.99 a month to hear episodes ad free. Now go move forward in your healing journey.